way, it gives us a great deal of freedom because we can engage the culture through a political lens, but not through, but not tied to the news cycle. We're not out to critique, you know, election results or or what's happening that day. You know, we're out to to look at what's going on in the culture over the last decade, mm-hmm. the last hundred years, mm-hmm. and to look broadly at the culture. And I, and I really feel that. You know, in in this new cycle age, that's actually more important than ever. That's James Pinero, executive editor of The New Criterion, a monthly review of the arts and intellectual life. This episode is the first of two interviews with Pinero, in which we discuss the political and aesthetic commitments of The New Criterion, which are conservative in a broad sense. We also discuss Pinero's critique of contemporary museum culture. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. The New Criterion was founded in 1982 by the art critic Hilton Kramer, formerly of the New York Times, and the music critic Samuel Lippmann. In the 80s, the journal became famous for its strong stances on the culture wars. It was resolutely in favor of high art and high modernism against popular art and postmodernism. Now edited by Roger Kimball, The New Criterion takes largely the same line on these issues today. In this interview, the first of two, we hear from executive editor James Pinero about the history of The New Criterion. James also advances his critique of contemporary museum culture and describes what he thinks should be the role of art in the age of Trump. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So, uh, Mr. Pinero, James, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Oh, thanks for having me. You're executive editor of The New Criterion, a review of arts and intellectual life. What would you say are some of the defining characteristics of that journal? So how would you distinguish it from, say, something like the old Partisan Review in the 50s and 60s, or today the New York Review of Books, or even something more recent like N Plus One? Sure. Well, The New Criterion, I think, has no peer. It's a, it's a unique publication. We do share, uh, I think, certain legacies with Partisan Review. Um, I think we were certainly born as a bit of a reaction to the New York Review of Books. Uh, Our history goes back to 1982, when Hilton Kramer, who was the chief art critic for the New York Times, left the New York Times, which is an unheard of thing to do, (laughs) because he wanted to start an independent publication uh, he joined Samuel Littman, a pianist, and founded the New Criterion. And so we're 35 years old now. And if you look back on our essays from the 80s um, and the 90s, I think the way we cover culture has really been consistent. It's often long form. I think mm. it, it assumes um, a very engaged readership, an intelligent readership, but not necessarily a specialized readership. So we're not writing for academics, although many academics read the publication. Um, It's a pleasure to write for it, too. I do write for it as an executive editor. As the executive editor, I'm also an art critic, um, and I I write about the gallery scene and and the institution of museums and other topics like that. So what function, I guess, in your estimation or, or in your experience even, does politics or political belief play in your journal? So I'm generally sure... You don't use the word conservative to describe the journal. That's not really what you're out to do particularly. But you yourself have sort of been called a preeminent voice of American cultural conservatism. Uh, And the publisher and editor of the New Criterion, Roger Kimball, 
has been called much the same. So do you consider your work a kind of conservation of culture or do you, do you think of yourself as a preserver of that which artistically or culturally needs to be preserved? Well, I think you, you summarized it there. I, we are conservative in the classically liberal sense mm. of it. We, we are a cultural publication out to conserve what we believe to be the best that has been thought and said in mm. Matthew Arnold's mm. choice phrasing. Um, and that can take many forms. And we have writers and readers uh, you know, from across the political um, spectrum. Uh, we are a conservative journal in the broadest sense, I would say. We're not a partisan journal. Mm. Um, and um, obviously, as a nonprofit journal, we are not out to take political positions either. So in a way, it gives us a great deal of freedom because we can engage the culture um, through a political lens, but not through, um, but not tied to the news cycle. We're not out to critique, you know, election results or, or what's happening that day. You know, we're out to to look at what's going on in the culture over the last decade, mm -hmm. the last hundred years. Mm -hmm and to look broadly at the culture. And I, and I really feel that, you know, in, in this new cycle age, that's actually more important than ever. So what does it mean or what has it meant uh, for you to work as a kind of conservative art critic and editor in the sense that you've been describing? I, I'd like to just provide some context for my question. I worry that when people think about art and politics or political belief in relation to each other, they immediately think of like the culture wars, Piss Christ, for example. Um, what is the role of a conservative art critic, in your view, that um, you can distinguish from the sort of um, the sort of uh, cultural wars as they played out in the '80s with respect to art? Well, this magazine was certainly involved in those cultural mm. wars uh, with Piss Christ, with the um, the NEA and, and the NEH. Um, so. Uh, you know, we are a critical journal in that way, but to your question specifically would be... Would so I guess I'm just thinking that, you, you, as, as you say, you publish long-form articles, you publish a lot of really good criticism of the art scene, and I simply worry uh, that when a lot of people think about art and then they think about the question of liberalism and conservatism with respect to it, they think of, as you say, uh, things that just pop up in the news cycle about how the art scene, um, hmm. I'll yeah. rephrase my question. Do you, do you follow what I'm... I think I do. Yeah. I think what's curious about, for us, for me, uh, when it comes to art and politics, is a desire to see the life of art removed from politics. Mm. And that, I think, as a critic, I see as, as a real problem with art. It's the um, intrusion of politics very okay. often into art, telling artists what to do or what we should be seeing or how we should interpret works of art. And the life of art, we believe, should exist beyond politics. And so it will often take a political critique to make that point. Mm -hmm. But I do think we believe that we're not looking to place our own politics on art. And so here at New Criterion, you get some interesting results through that perspective, where this magazine is conservative and traditionalist, but also high modernist, which is an unusual combination for many people. So that 
you know, Hilton Kramer um, was a great champion of, of abstraction, for example. Okay. Which is not what people might first assume when they hear conservative journal of the arts. So with high modernism, could you throw out some names of examples of high modernist artists? Well, let me just say, it comes from a position that believes that modernism was not necessarily or fully a break with the past. Mm -hmm. It was in certain respects in the Duchampian, Marcel Duchamp mode, was a break, a radical break with the past. But uh, a distilling, it was also a distilling or purification of the art of the past mm. and therefore continues the tradition of the past into the present moment. So I, in a recent address, I have, I have a few questions about um, a recent address you gave uh, on the topic of museums today because you've written mm -hmm. a good deal about that and about gallery culture, as you say. Uh, you focus on museums of the present, uh, which you criticized uh, based on a shift you see in the focus of museums from works of art to the people who look at them. I think that was a sort of phrase mm -hmm. you used. Um, or the, to a shift toward the people who stand near works of art or uh, an example you gave is take a selfie in front of them. You call most museums today, quote, museums for somebody. So what do you mean by that turn of phrase? Well, so it, um, the traditional American museum, collecting museum, uh, was a museum uh, of objects. It was a museum dedicated to the, cult, the preservation of these objects. And over the last 25 years or, or a little more, they've really become about the user experience mm. and about catering to what the user or they perceive the user to want. And that's really a shift away from their original mandate. And that's the, what we're tracing here at New Criterion. What you were, you were describing with my essay is a feature piece in our December 2016 issue. Uh, we hosted a symposium on the institution of museums uh, called um, The Future of Permanence in an Age of Ephemera. Uh, it was a, a symposium that the papers then became um, the December issue. And uh, I should also mention that audio and video from the symposium are available on our website. So when you, you so that, as you say, the general theme was the future of permanence. Um, could you describe what you mean or what the journal would mean by permanence in this sense? Well, stepping back, I think the major critique of museums today, and this critique can be made from the left and the right, is that museums have been kind of overtaken by a neoliberal hmm. orthodoxy. Uh, it's an orthodoxy to believe, that believes in, uh, it kind of has created a museum's arms race, and a museum industrial complex that I called it, where it's about bigger facilities, catering to more needs, uh, bringing in bigger audience with bigger budgets, and it kind of spirals out of control, forgetting what it really is all about, which is access to those collections an unmediated experience with art. That's what museums can provide. Just the way the traditional library can provide direct access to books. A museum can provide direct access to the greatest works of art. And that is a truly radical thing, much more radical than devising all kinds of methods to, to um, trick uh, the museum public into seeing art the way the museum wants them to see it, mm. uh, to overly dictating what the art should be. It, it seems like... Um 
the maneuvers that museums seem to um, make to try to mediate the way people experience art would in large part derive from the fact that they're simply trying to get more people in the doors. Um, do you think do you think that these tactics are in part because not as many people are going to museums as they used to go to museums? No, in fact, I mean, more people are going to museums okay. than ever before. Um, they would say there need to be more and more people going to museums, but I think they need to consider the quality of that experience mm. when they're in the museum. Um, what's bringing them in? Are they really engaging with the works of art? And in, so we can have essays that might look at, well, you know, should cameras be banned in museums? These, these would be totally anathema to the, to the museum administrator of today, which uses Instagram as a way to, to publicize the, the museum. Uh, but what you see in museums is people with their backs turned to the works of art just to take selfies right. of themselves standing in front of the works of art. So, I mean, that's, a, that's an unusual cultural shift away from, I think, um, the traditional way we, we view art and, and revere art. Yeah, you brought up in your essay, uh, as well as in your address, this idea that a lot of museums host selfie days where guests are encouraged to take a selfie in front of this or that work of art. It seems like, as I said before, the purpose of this gimmick would simply be to get people to tweet and Instagram about the museum so that more people will come. Um, but then the whole point of going to a museum would be simply to sort of be seen at the museum or to advertise that you're at the museum standing in front of a work of art. It, a, a means, in other words, of getting some cultural capital for yourself. Well, what does the selfie do? It puts you in the center of the picture with traditionally what would be the focus in the background. Right. So you're in front of the painting. It's your painting then. And it, it's ultimately um, a narcissistic way to view all of culture where I have to be at the center of it. And unfortunately, the modern museum really caters to that as um, kind of temples of the self uh, versus the traditional model, which is, you know, as the kind of uh, the preserver of culture. So you have an interesting line. I, th I think it's your final line in the piece where you write, quote, the end result of the museum for somebody is a museum without objects that is ultimately objectless, a museum for nobody. So what are you getting at with that last line? Well, I'm kind of taking this current museum logic to its extreme to say, well, if we keep going in this direction, museums will be like shopping malls. They'll be um, uh, coffee, cafes, uh, re beautiful restaurants. Mm -hmm. They'll be everything but what they're traditionally supposed to be. And will be like anything else, but also will not be anything, really. They'll, 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 they'll get people in the door, but for what? Are there any, so you're a critic of gallery culture. Are there any uh, museums or galleries right now, say in New York City or elsewhere, that you think are examples of this trend? In the, in the negative? Yes. Well, um, I mean, this is what we write about every month. I mean, there are many good examples. You know, I think the Frick Collection, when you visit New York, really deserves a visit. It's a wonderful, uh, remarkable um, museum based on uh, Frick's collection uh, in his home, which has expanded since, um, since his day. And it's really preserved apart from, I think, many, the way many museums operate, which is trying to get the maximum yield of people through the door. Mm. It's a domestic experience. It's a different experience for a museum. Um, there are other museums, like I, I write about the Hispanic Society on 155th and Broadway, which is closed right now for a few years of renovation. Um, I write about museums like the Crystal Bridges in Arkansas, which I think has done a remarkable job of bringing 
great American culture uh, to an underserved part of the country. So that they're doing wonderful work. On the flip side, you have museums, you know, more like the Contemporary Whitney Museum of American Art, uh, which recently moved uh, to a new location, and um, it is worth the visit just just to see what what I give as an example of a, a museum really pursuing the user, where it's a museum not to be looked into but looked out of. It's almost like a museum as a condominium complex with million, multi-million dollar views of the Hudson River. You look great, you feel great in it, but uh, in terms of just square footage to show their art, there's really no great expansion or, over their previous location. They improved the space from just 30 2,000 square feet to 50,000 square feet for art um, at the cost of over $400 million. The rest of that went to the views, the decks, um, the circulation, the, the feeling that we're the center of the art, not the works of art. Hmm. So I, I've got to get this in here because I'm, I'm from Michigan uh, and have a soft spot for the DIA. You recently wrote oh, yeah. an article about the Detroit Institute of Art. What's your feeling about that museum? Oh, I, I, yeah, you, you're referring to the piece I wrote in October, November, October 2016. I think it was, I think it was yeah. October, yeah. Uh, where I, I took a road trip with my family to Detroit, really to see the Detroit Institute. What a, what a great story and what a great city for art that is. Um, you know, the history of art in that city predates the history of the automobile. And the, uh, the Detroit Institute um, has an, a remarkable, amazing collection, one of the top six museums in the country. Hmm and not that many people visit it. And it's a story where, it, it's a long story having to do with the bankruptcy of the city, but there was a, a moment a few years ago where it appeared that the Institute would have to sell off some of its masterpieces in order to pay down uh, the, the, what it owed, in the, the city owed in the bankruptcy because the city owned the museum. And through a kind of remarkable series of events, uh, foundations and industry and individuals came together and, and the state to pay off that bankruptcy so that the museum didn't have to sell its cultural treasures, which I think really shows that uh, Detroit in the end decided to invest in their culture. Um, and I think it, it rallied people around the value of art for that city. Mm. So it's, you do make some points about relating the story of the DIA to the story of Detroit generally, and you think very deliberately about the past of that city. and it. Reminds me of another line from uh, your critique of uh, current, you know, museum culture. You write about the removal of the Brooklyn Museum's Grand Staircase, um, and the formulation you use to critique that decision is that, it, I think you, the phrase you use is, it's the distancing of the present from the past. And it seems that that would indicate what might be uniquely conservative about your critique of museums generally and of art today generally, this sort of sentiment that we want to preserve what needs to be preserved. Yes, and our reverence for the past, because those stairs, just to, for your listeners, the Brooklyn Museum is a, another great 19th century institution. It was never finished. If you see the Brooklyn Museum, it's about only a fifth done from what the original plan called for. In the 1920s, however, a very progressive director decided to modernize the institution and turn art into an educational experience at the expense of what the art was really saying. And as part of that, he stripped out the ornamentation of the museum and took the grand staircase that took you from Eastern Parkway up to the precincts of the museum and chopped it off so that you entered at essentially the basement level of the museum. And you still enter the, at the basement level today. That, I think, is an indication where 
progressivism really can be so damaging to culture because it uses formulas to try to fit culture into, into, into lockstep. And that's just not the way culture is. Culture is, is, is um, incredibly diverse and, uh, and it doesn't always follow your ideology. So I'm hoping uh, to address the question of the arts as we move from an Obama presidency to a Trump presidency. What, if anything, do you think will change in the art world because of or related to this shift? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's one that I think the new criterion can think about in a different way than other publications because we, we're, we can stand back, step back, and, and look more broadly at the culture. I just I'll preface this by saying that um, we have commissioned a 10 essay series on populism starting last September and this series will become uh, it runs every month as our lead feature and it'll become a book in about a year mm. so that's I think a great way that New Criterion can look at the phenomenon the worldwide and historical phenomenon of populism uh, without getting partisan in our discussion about it uh, to your question about art in the age of Trump this is actually a topic for my essay in the uh, January issue. So just most recent. Yeah, the most recent issue. And, um, you know, art can be a unifier. I think I came to this essay, uh, you know, aware that we are in a, in a very, very destructive cultural bubble. Um, the country is divided, and that was clear before the election, and it certainly was clear after the election. I do think that the knee jerk reaction. Uh, on both sides, but especially on the cultural left, will be to dig in to cast uh, their opponents, their, the Trump supporters, as deplorables, to shut down museums. I think you're going to see more calls for a kind of cultural strike. I really think that's the wrong approach, and that what artists should be trying to do is understand the culture that voted against them in this case. So what's the culture of red state America? and make those connections. And that's why I mentioned the, the example of Crystal Bridge is doing a great job of, of bridging that divide. I mean, it's appropriately, appropriately named Crystal Bridges because it bridges the divide, the cultural divide, I think, to an extent. Um, what else can be done? Well, it's interesting. When I wrote the piece, you know, I was assuming that uh, Trump would maintain the NEA and NEH, those national endowments. He may defund them, which I think would uh, follow in many of his campaign promises to reduce spending in Washington. Uh, I will say I think those um, uh, the endowments these are these are taxpayer funded endowments mm -hmm. uh, have less of an effect on the culture than many people believe. They they only provide a small fraction of arts funding in this country, and I imagine the art world will continue fine without them. Um, Beyond that, you know, I would like to see a little more openness to divergent ideas, to not shut down the debate, but to look at artists who are not necess necessarily practicing in a mode that is acceptable to MoMA or Whitney. You know, to say there are 99% of artists out there are not practicing a an acceptable aesthetic to a modern museum. And so I think we need to be more open in that. You know, when we have things like the a biennial, the Whitney Biennial, well, let's look to artists who, are, who wouldn't necessarily have been there in the past from places that wouldn't necessarily be represented in the past. So could you be, um, could you be specific about, say, some artists you think who aren't operating in the sort of MoMA mode 
um, or people who wouldn't generally be represented in these well, scenes that you're talking I, about? I give one example in, in this essay, more in the Whitney mode. The Whitney is a, uh, has a biennial, they have one coming up. It's often, almost always, a very political biennial, very political art. But politics, all of a particular narrow progressive stripe. And uh, I make the case that, you know, there are um, conservative Republican performance artists out there. I, I give an example of one artist named Scott Lebedo, who painted the American flag on 50 rooftops on 50 states, and he documented this. Now, you may not say this is the most groundbreaking work mm -hmm. of art, but it's in line with a lot of the other types of performance and political art that we see in a show like this. And you know, why not have that represented in that case? So the point, or uh, one of many points you make in your article, uh, and you cite other critics who have pointed this out as well, is that Trump basically lost the art vote. If there was an art vote in America, he probably, probably lost it. Very few artists uh, voted for him. And he didn't uh, really have any shepherd fairies either um but then right. that, that, that just you're, you're referring to the 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 gentleman who made the obama poster precisely with, right. with hope right. right um but then that just raises a, a, a i think an interesting question should artists in your view sort of come out for presidential candidates that that would bring them very much into the mainstream political discussion which the artist kind of as a category seems usually to try to avoid well some do some don't and i will say um First off, for your question, um, I'm sure there are many artists who did vote for Trump. Right. Um, so the, Trump lost the art establishment vote, which is different from the art vote. Um, you know, I think at least, you know, to coastal in, within the world of coastal elites, this is the New York art world we're talking about. I mean, support for Trump is totally unheard of. It would be anathema. You'd be you'd be kicked off the island of Manhattan if you revealed that. And the problem is that they're actually, artists are as dispersed along the political spectrum, truly, as the rest of America. And I'm not, but I'm not sure that's reflected in what they're allowed to talk about, what they're free to say. I mean, it's a little bit like being in academia. It's very hard to be, uh, let's say, a Trump supporter and assume you're gonna get tenure at a major university. So I'd like to ask just a bit about you, James. So where did you grow up and uh, go to school? So I um, grew up in New York's Upper West Side um, and uh, in a very liberal milieu, uh, with very liberal parents. And um, I think uh, like many um, writers who come to the right in the end, uh, who, come, who, who start off on the left, you know, I think we can see the limitations or, or, or the dangers of extreme thinking in any one way extreme ideology. And that was my case. You know, I, I saw that um, the importance of, of open dialogue, discourse, critique. I then went to Dartmouth College. I majored in classics. And um, immediately after that, went to work at National Review as an editor. Um, I uh, had a wonderful winter living uh, in Stad with Bill Buckley. We worked on, a, I was his writing assistant for a novel. That was a an amazing experience. Um, I spent a little time in graduate school and then came to New Criterion about 15 years ago. So it astounds me how much actually William F. Buckley comes up in this podcast and even at, at moments in conversations um, uh, that seem kind of unlikely. Could you talk a bit about what 
it was like working for National Review and particularly for him um, when you were younger and what effect it had on the development of your sort of cultural and political sure. views. Yeah, well, happy to. Well, I'll start off by saying, you know, I really miss Bill. I miss him. A lot of people miss him. Um, you know, I'd love to ask him what he thinks about politics today or anything. And then, uh, unfortunately, we don't, we, we'll never know. My experience in Stad, which I actually wrote about for National Review in a piece called Call Me Bill, um, I saw, I think, a slightly different version of Bill that many people assume he was all about. Uh, he wasn't, at that stage in his life, also interested in talking about day-to-day politics and partisan politics. He was much more of a cultural figure, a cultural writer. Um, he was someone who loved music. When we, I would go up and, before he was a workaholic, worked seven days a week. The reason he wrote a novel in Stad was because it was his wife's packed desire to be in Stad, but he was bored to be there. It's a ski resort in Switzerland. And so he decided to fill his time by trying to write a novel every winter for the six weeks he was there. And he pretty much succeeded trying to write 2,000 words a day um, and almost got there. My role was to do research on scene locations, to look at the drafts that came in and, and fix the chronology and fix the names because he was so quick with it, it would be kind of a bit of a jumble and I'd have to puzzle it back together again. He had no idea where the plot was going. We'd talk about it during lunch, we'd ski. Uh, the day, the daily routine was wake up, uh, get started very early. He might have already written his column by the time I arrived at about 7.30 uh, in the morning. We wrote for the morning, went to lunch, skied in the afternoon, did a few more hours of writing at 7 o'clock. Um, his butler came in with the keer and we had a cigar and talked about the plot and how it was going. And he said, should I kill off this character? It was, it was a spy novel. Yeah, these were, his, what were they called? The, um... Well, the, the Blackford Oak series. Right. And this was not a Blackford Oak book. It was um, a novelization of the head of counterintelligence named James Jesus Angleton. And it was, a, um, and, and his kind of nemesis, Kim Philby, who was the, uh, the British Soviet spy who got away. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write, uh, to see him write it, and it was amazing to see his creative energies at work. Um, and I, as I write in the piece for National Review, I think music played a very large role. He, he was someone who grew up playing piano and having music surround him, and he typed a lot like playing piano. Just as, he, as we always listened to, to uh, Bach uh, throughout the day, the Goldberg variations mainly, he would type, and, and it kind of was like he was playing the piano. And I think there was a great musicality to the way he wrote. And certainly the way he spoke. I mean, the, there's a reason that he was such a master of television as well. Such a speaker. So what gave rise then to your interest in... Well, I guess, uh, Mike... Hmm. Because you, 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 you spoke uh, generally about being raised uh, in a sort of liberal left household. How did you generally make the transition toward the right? And at the same time, what gave interest... What gave rise to your interest in the arts, and were those two things related at all? They kind of happened, I think, independently. You know, I actually come from an artistic family. My grandfather was a painter and a professor of art. And so going to museums and having art being at the forefront of your discussion was kind of what I grew up doing. Um, politically, I would say that my politics, by the time I reached college, were pretty much where they are today. And I became editor-in-chief of a conservative newspaper called Dartmouth Review when I was at Dartmouth and, uh, and just kind of kept going from there. My time with Bill actually encouraged me to pursue a slightly more cultural route. 
than let's say just being a political writer. Um, and, uh, and that's why I ended up uh, coming back, coming to New Criterion, because I really wanted to write about, um, well, I wanted to write about culture, not about politics, let's say that. So which then, which artists or composers or writers moved you when you were younger, and, and which ones move you today? Well, I, I, uh, I wrote about one essay, um, Milton Avery, who was a kind of first-generation American modernist painter, um, how there was a catalog from the 1982 um, actual Whitney um, survey of his work and as a young uh, boy I was just fascinated by the cover image there and I would kind of formulate what it was and it would change every day in my mind and I still remember it it was called Red Rock Falls um, it's not in a New York collection I think it's uh, it's in the Midwest somewhere I've never actually seen the actual painting I wish I, sh I, wish I could but even that reproduction alone just got my, my mind going. And, um, and it's that kind of free association of art that, and just kind of being fascinated by art that continues with me. And it's always been with me. It's the reason I, I really so enjoy, uh, in particular, going out to galleries, seeing new art, and writing about it. James Panero, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Oh, sure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That was James Panero, executive editor of The New Criterion. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground, and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center of presidential studies, and oh, what a year it has been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow HowensteinGVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.